Hello, daily writers, weekly writers, schedule-driven writers, and also hello to the rest of you sometimes writers or striving for discipline writers. Welcome back to Write Minded, and hello, Grant Faulkner. Hello, model of self-discipline, Brooke Warner. <laughs> yes, thank you. Speaking of self-discipline, I am here recording, and uh, you'll notice in my voice that I am sounding a little sick because I am, but that is what discipline will do to you, Grant. Uh, in fact, we, <laughs> we have to know a thing or two about discipline because the podcast takes discipline, and we're working through sickness sometimes. Uh, you know, There's nothing like a weekly deadline to help put into perspective the work that writers on deadline do. And of course, uh, some writers impose these deadlines on themselves. Others have deadlines imposed upon them. And we're talking about discipline today, as often is the case because of our guest, Adriana Trijani. Uh, you know, when I started to research her, I had this, oh shit moment, you know, like this woman is nonstop and she's doing the work of being a full-time writer and across genres and mediums and forms. And she's writing well, I mean, she's, we're going to get into this in the interview. She historically has written a novel a year. And I think that that is continuing to be true. Uh, and she's also written four movies. Uh, and so I just was having this image of her, you know, like having lightning bolts coming out of her fingers. <laughs> and I just decided on the spot that this would be our topic. And so here we are, Grant, talking about discipline. So tell me, are you disciplined with your writing? And do you consider yourself a disciplined writer? Yeah, discipline is an interesting topic because I don't think I'm a disciplined writer, but that's because my discipline has become so ingrained and embedded in my writing by a lifetime of doing it that I don't remember ever consciously forming it, but I did. And and your question has made me think back to those early moments and, and way back when I was 20 and first decided to be a writer, I spent a summer living in this shack on my grandparents' farm. And before doing that, I'd read Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast, which is all about his discipline and writing process. And I was very inspired by it. And I tried to essentially emulate it. So I woke up and wrote every morning. And it was my first time really writing every day for a sustained period of time. And I don't know if there are moments of resistance or avoidance, but I, I don't remember ever taking a day off that summer. So I, that summer, its value to me was actually forming a habit of discipline. And then I think back uh, soon after that, when I told people I was going to be a writer after I graduated from college, I think I felt so much doubt from other people <laughs> that uh, I formed a kind of stubbornness and determination that really fueled my discipline. You know, I wanted to prove them all wrong and, and I wasn't going to fail just because I didn't show up to do it. So, you know, there's there's definitely some writing I do that's not exactly calling me, but I, I never worry about not being able to do it. So how about you? I think of you as a very disciplined person. Yeah. I mean, where my writing is concerned, it depends on what I'm writing. If I'm on a deadline um, or like if it's the show notes for this podcast, my gosh, I'm so disciplined. I would never not make a deadline. I would never you know, not show up for our show. <laughs> Good, thank you. <laughs> I'm always prepared. So I think that's the thing is like the the discipline of knowing that someone else is relying on you, that really lights a fire under me. But when it comes to my own books, I suffer. And, you know, I am a disciplined person, but I'm actually very selectively disciplined. And so I think this is like where I've always loved the writing is like exercise analogy, because 
I am a regular exerciser, <laughs> you know, just like writing. Um, I exercise a lot, but I also exercise like I write, which is that I do it in my comfort zone. So I write articles and blog posts and I contribute to things when I'm asked. I prepare for our show. But if we start talking about things that are just for me, like writing a book that has no direct payoff and no one is waiting for it, then that's where I suffer, right? So I'm suffering a little bit right now with the new book for exactly that reason, just because everything always takes precedence over the book. And so that's why for me, it's so, so important to have accountability structures. I I just know historically that that's the thing that will see me through. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned accountability structures because I don't know if you know this, but you happen to be talking to a person who works as an organization <laughs> that specializes in accountability. Um, and there's so many ways to go about it, I think. And accountability uh, really starts before you start writing. And I, I, I love the research out there on accountability. And that there's a lot of research that shows that the best way to quit a behavior like smoking is to tell others you're quitting because as a, you know, we're group oriented species. So we, we seek to please others and we don't want to have others ask us if we've reached our goals, if we haven't. Um, and so that goes with, with writing as well, saying something that you want to do, any kind of change of behavior. And I actually have an accountability buddy and we set goals with each other and email each other, our weekly results each Monday. And it's really helped me literally embed this practice of walking 10,000 steps a day, which I started in the early days of the pandemic. And and now I've reached my goal of meditating every morning for 10 minutes. And it's just like, like, like I said, it's embedded in my practice. Now I don't really think about it too much, but having that accountability buddy helped me get there, which brings up another key tool of accountability tracking. So without my accountability buddy, I wouldn't be as, as conscious of my patterns and, and, and a consciousness of my patterns has helped me think about my lapses and then think about how to be more successful. So it's interesting to me how I need an accountability system for some things and, and, and how once something is embedded in your own system of behavior, you don't necessarily even need it anymore. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't know why, you know, this many years later, I totally need it. But again, only on certain things, you know, so mm-hmm. I think that's part of it, too. And just looking at those places where you do need the accountability and just accepting it and then finding ways to to get that in your life. And the other thing I want to talk to Adriana about, but we actually, you know, you people know we record the interviews uh, before the shows typically. So we didn't really get into this question of the prolificness across Adriana's different uh, mediums, you know, that she does books and film and other types of writing. But a lot of our guests do that, you know, and it always strikes me that, you know, these kinds of people have a lot of different kinds of skill sets and that they're working on multiple kinds of things all at once. And so I read up, as we always do, you know, a lot about Adriana before uh, the interview kind of in preparation, but she wrote about the fact that she'll finish a novel and then she'll work on a movie. You know, it's not like she's working on all of these different things at the same time, but still the creative output is really impressive. And because she's written 20 books, there are very few people actually, Grant, that have written that many books we've interviewed. I mean, I think Jane Smiley, tell me if anyone else comes to mind. I mean, Danielle Steele, um, who we haven't interviewed, and Mm -hmm. Stephen King, we also haven't interviewed. That would be a fun one to do sometime if he would ever grace us on this show. (laughs) But, you know, they co-write books. Like Danielle Steele has ghostwriters and Stephen King co-writes with his son. But a novel a year is like, really insane output, right, Grant? I mean, I'd like to talk to you about that, especially because of NaNoWriMo and people are writing their messy drafts. And then, but I guess 
technically you could, of course, finesse those drafts into really outputting a novel a year. But how common is that? It just takes such unbroken focus. I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a rare thing, especially to do it every year. And and most writers I know, including myself, don't write that much, you know, beyond um, November. And, you know, when I think about my own writing, one key to my writing discipline is how much I jump back and forth to other projects or things related to my writing. So I don't work on one, I don't burrow in on one novel for the entire year. But that said, I hear uh, there are obviously plenty of writers who are doing that. And, and I think of, uh, especially like some genres kind of require that, such as romance, um, where most authors publish at least a book a year. And I know many of our NaNoWriMo writers, and I'm thinking of Marissa Meyer, who publishes a book a year. You know, and, they, and you know, they're, they're great books. They're like with Marissa, every one of her books is a, is a bestseller and it's a beautiful book. And I, I know she doesn't have a ghostwriter. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very energetic pace. I put it that way that most people really can't do. But I wanted to point out something that you said earlier, Brooke, that I thought was interesting. You said you had a hard time writing your book because there was no direct payoff and no one is waiting for it. And, and I think that there's a key there to unlock. And I, I wonder if that if you felt there was like with Marissa and some of these writers I'm thinking of, there is a direct payoff and there is someone waiting for it. And so I'm wondering if that would help you churn out a book. It's, it's a really good question, you know, because I... I don't have the kind of fan base or following that people are just waiting for my next book to drop. And Mark Nepo, you know, my friend and the poet said one time, I'm so glad that I kept writing when no one else was looking. Mm -hmm. And, and I, that's always really struck me as very inspirational because that's kind of how it is for me. Like, no one really cares, you know, if you show up and do a post. But once you show up and do a post, and I'm talking about social media, and then a lot of people are like, oh, you're here. Yay. Right. And so it reminds me of that thing where it's like, no one's necessarily going to miss you if you don't make the party. <laughs> but <laughs> if you make the party, people are like, hey, and you get a lot of validation. And it's like, I'm so stoked you're here and you're going to have those connections. So I think for me, I have to remember that it could be the case that no one else is waiting for it. But then when I drop it, people want it, you know, so there's a there's a validation loop in that. And I but it's it's a little obscure, maybe. And so I, I think it's the it's just reminding myself. <laughs> that's all. But you know, I did want to say something too about just how, um, how I write, you know, because I do think that I'm a person who struggles with the discipline of the daily writing or the weekly writing, like I far fell short in November of my writing goals. But I do like to do these like, you know, bursts of writing. So I'll write for, you know, three hours a day, for instance, in a single sitting, I could get done 10,000 words. I remember one time that I wrote for six hours in a single day. But the downside of that was like, at the end, I was actually involuntarily twitching and I had mm. to <laughs> go for a walk to shake it out, you know? So I think we're all wired really differently. And so, yes, I totally appreciate where you're coming from on that front. And a lot of it is about sort of psychologically psyching ourselves out, so to speak, and then also just understanding, you know, how do we write and what is the best way to, you know, honor the different rhythms that we each have. I totally relate to your uh, use of the word twitching, <laughs> Brooke. Um, I think I, I remember, you know, I had a, a writing residency, the only residency I've ever had in my life, and it was 30 days, and, and I wanted to just maximize my productivity that month. Um, and I set a really uh, high word count goal for every day. I can't remember what it was, but but I remember waking up early and just writing 
pretty relentlessly every day. And, and the interesting thing was, is, is how it's not only mentally taxing to do that, it's really physically taxing as mm-hmm. well. And, and what I found is that some of that extreme writing, it just wasn't serving me in the end. Um, and, and since I mentioned uh, a movable feast by Hemingway earlier, he, he always, he, he structured his days of writing where he would only write for two, maybe three hours a day. He wanted to leave like some fuel in the tank that could kind of restore itself. So he'd come back with momentum the next day. And I think everybody has to figure out what, what their, you know, what their levels are, you know, like Stephen King, since you mentioned him, he does write 2000 words a day and he can do that. He's trained himself for that, but I can't do that, at least not with the regularity that he can. So Adriana is obviously very prolific. She's written 20 books and uh, I can't wait to hear what her, um, you know, what her ceiling is for, for extreme writing. (laughs) So uh, we look forward to talking, learning more about her writing life after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. We're thrilled to have with us Adriana Trijani, who is the best-selling author of 20 books of fiction and nonfiction, including her latest, The Good Left Undone, an instant New York Times bestseller and People's Book of the Week. Her work is published in 38 languages around the world. An award-winning playwright, television writer, producer, and filmmaker, her screen credits include writer-director of Big Stone Gap, based on her debut novel, the adaptation of her novel, Very Valentine, and director of Then Came You. She grew up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, where she co-founded The Origin Project, an in-school writing program which serves over 2,500 students in Appalachia. And she lives in New York City, where she serves on the New York State Council on the Arts. Adriana, welcome. Thank you, Brooke. This is a long way from Ohio, where we were last together. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And it was uh, 3.30 in the morning where we shared a cab back from the Irma Bombeck Writers Conference. And we said absolutely nothing to each other (laughs) until we got to the airport. Oh, my gosh. We were so tired. It was like we were worn out. We we left it all on the floor. (laughs) We had to. At the Irma Bombeck (laughs) thing. Because, listen, that's a beautiful event. I mean, it's days of, you know, a comedy festival there. And... uh, and uh, writers and it well, was and and you were brilliant, and that's exactly why I asked you to be on the show because I saw you on stage and you were funny and quick witted, and I was just like, "Who is this woman?" And then I looked into you, and since then I've read your novel. So welcome, and we're just thrilled. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thank you for reading it. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But I, I wanted to start with where you started your career, which was the Cosby Show spinoff, uh, A Different World. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to take a quick second to fangirl you about that and ask you, what about writing for A Different World prepared you for the kind of writer you became, you know, someone who's written all of these books and four screenplays? I had been toiling, um, you know, for five years in the uh, New York cabaret circuit. And um, my girlfriends, 
who were working in the mail rooms at the time and now have ascended to the heights of show business, uh, were worried about me because I didn't really know. I didn't know what an agent was. I didn't know any of that stuff. I was just an artist. All right. I'm here to make it in the theater. When I needed to make a living, which, you know, everyone does, I got hired on that show. And there's a long story behind that, but it's a fun story. But specifically, A Different World gave me the following things. First of all, when I joined the uh, Directors Guild of America, which I'm a very proud member of, Debbie Allen signed me in. She was one of my co-signers, which I was so proud of because I Debbie Allen taught me kind of everything. I was a director, a young director, but she engaged every person on the set in a way that was in, um, integrated. She integrated your talents on in every single way that she could. And on that show, Joanne Curley Kerner was the producer. And at the time, she was a young mother who, um, you know, her kids were little. Everybody had little kids. We were, most of us were unmarried. We're all single because we were, you know, we were kids. We were in our 20s. And um, the producer of the show, when they, when they went to hire me, I didn't know anything about anything. And I said, look, I said, I'm going to be writing about uh, black colleges, historic black colleges. And I said, uh, I know them because I grew up in Virginia. But I said, I need to go to Atlanta before I come to you. And I, they were a little stunned. And I said, uh, but that's the way I got to do it because that's how I write. And they sent me. They sent me to Atlanta. So to, to this day, I have these beautiful memories of, uh, of the, the, that, that uh, there were five schools there, Spelman and Morehouse. And, and I met the students and, you know, I wasn't that far out of being out of college. So it was very familiar and warm and welcoming to me, but it also began a, uh, an affinity and an openness to hear this about the struggles of, being a person of color in this country, particularly being a girl, a woman. And um, the show was this vibrant, let me tell you, Brooke, that like show nights were, I can't even, I'm still friends with all those folks, but uh, Jasmine Guy, you know, was the star of it. And she was so smart and is so smart as a writer and a theater person. All those people were multi-talented from, from Debbie on down. I mean, everybody could do everything. And it taught me, you know, you really have to be a person who uses, you leave no skill on the floor, none. You use everything you are, everything you come from, everything you know when you're working on a show. Discipline is the theme of today's show. And, um, you know, discipline, just because anyone who spends time digging into your work ethic, like the way you, you have, you'll, you know, you'll see a through line of discipline that, that cuts through everything. And uh, you've said that everything you write is based upon your family. And I'm curious, like what those intersections are. Do you get your discipline from your family of origin? And, and also, is, it, it, are, are the family stories like an infinitely deep well of inspiration for you? What a fantastic question, because... Yes, I've said this many times, but I say it more now than I even did at the beginning of my career because I live it, which is my, I write to honor on, on a certain level working people. And I come from clever, hardworking survivors. And so what does that mean and how do I incorporate it into my life? 
I finally being honest with people and telling them the truth, which is I have to work seven days a week at what I do. Um, if I don't work seven days a week, I, I a can't get it done. And I have to honor the thought process. When you're creative, you have to honor what well, it looks fallow. It looks like I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm going on a long walk and talking to myself or I'm sitting in a chair staring straight ahead and my mouth is moving. My family tells me this stuff. It's all, when you're an artist, it's, it's integrated into your life. There's no such thing as a vacation. You know, my poor husband, he would love to go on vacation, but I, I'm incapable of it. I don't know what that means. Now, somebody might say, oh, you're going to grind yourself to a pulp and then you die. Well, I don't look at the creative process that way. I look at it as the highest expression of my soul and the highest expression of whatever meager gifts God's given me. So discipline is my ability to honor the gift. And that means there's structure, there's goals, there's um, accountability, there's uh, eventually a sense of, uh, of completion. You know, when, when I finish a book, I've learned, don't go back. You got to move forward. You, you, if you go like a crab sideways, you know, that's no good. And the other part of it that, that I have learned that involves discipline is the discipline not to react to negativity, judgment, bad reviews, good reviews, a claim, not a claim, but to stay focused on the reader, one reader, and not to get involved in that nonsense because that is just nonsense and you don't even remember it. You know, six months later, you're like, why would I get my feelings hurt? So I don't get my feelings hurt at this point. And I know that sounds crazy. Now, listen, if somebody, when you do what we do, you know, people say things to you, you know, like, I hate your hair. Can you, can't you get your hair fixed? Would you please get some, I mean, you know, like my mother would do, can't you fix your hair? They'll say something small to you and then something great to you. And both things you've got to, you you know, it can't define what your, your mission is. So discipline to me is like one of those shopping nets around the ideas, the execution of the ideas, the products that I deliver, the the business relationships that I have, the art relationships that I have, the relationship I have with myself about my creativity. It's like in a net. And the discipline is how I unpack that and use it on a daily basis. It's it's a it's a um Discipline to me is a beautiful word. It's not a word of suffering. It's a word of of order, concentration, and calmness, and serenity. I think we picked the perfect theme for you, Adriana. It just came through so much in reading about you. Um, And I mean, the other thing I saw, of course, when I saw you on stage is that you're incredibly funny. And I read that you founded a female comedy troupe, The Outcasts, after you graduated from college. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet your books, I mean, I clearly haven't read all of them. And so I'd love for you to say more. I mean, the the most recent one is this epic historical book. And clearly not all of your books are funny. I mean, how do you integrate in like the being funny, which I think is is more about your stage performance and kind of how you show up in the world. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. But I I guess the question I'm wanting to ask is how come you didn't become a humor writer? Well, you know, um, because I believe that you use your gifts 
and I have a gift for writing the, and when I say a gift, I mean, eh, it's a skill maybe that's been honed, but when you're telling a story, you have to tell the story in the, the place that it lives. Now, interestingly, they're always trying to pigeonhole me and I'm going to tell you straight up, this is the truth. When you're funny, they di- dismiss you. Now, the, the, the audience loves you and the readers love you and you are living at your highest level when you're funny, but you, you also get killed for it in this serious world of books because there's a pervasive uh, thing. Uh, there's an overveil to publishing. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm its biggest proponent. I love writers. I have them on the show. I, you know, I do a Facebook Live that, that I, you know, listen, we've had 400 guests at this point and I hope to have uh, a thousand more. Uh, I read the books and I'm able to talk to these folks about how they do what they do. And which, which always brings me back to the baseline of how am I doing it? And am I doing it the best I can? So to Brooke, it's such a loaded question about comedy because it looks easy and it's the most difficult thing in the world to be funny and, um, and to read the room. A lot of like, when you see me speak in public is I'm feeling stuff from the people. So comedy, to me, has to be, you have to free yourself to do it, to, to write it and to do it. Even your question, Brooke, about where the category of something. Now, now I'm going to tell you, The Good Left Undone, I thought it was a contemporary novel. Hmm. Oh, no. Well, the publisher got a hold of it and said, this is historical fiction. So now, you know, I got all these historical fiction books coming over the transom because they think that's what I am. But when I started, they called me an Appalachian. I was a Southern writer hmm. and I did four books in the Big Stone Gap series. Then they then they said I was a New York uh, hipster with the, with the Valentine series, a romance <laughs> writer. Then they said, you know, I could keep going. The Shoemaker's Wife, that was an epic historical fiction sold like crazy. That ah, now I'm that. I'm so glad you said that, because when I was researching you, I was like, what? kind of writer is she you know like what are all these books these 20 uh these 20 different novels and it's hard because the publishing industry so wants to categorize you and and yet you know also i saw you said like everything is about your family right and you have yeah, these every, really- everything and, and i'm not going to get through <laughs> i'm not going to get through all the stories because i'm from a huge family and these people right. to me when i was a kid they fascinated me i thought i was in a movie they were fascinating and their stories were fascinating. And I was the child that wanted to know why. Why did you do that? And it, I, they, I was annoying. <laughs> I wanted to know. And so imagine that I find a career where that's all I do all day. Why? Why do you feel that way to my characters? What? What? Why are you doing that? And I'm going to say this. It's serious stuff. Hmm. It's very serious stuff. It's the stuff of life. And it's the stuff of the experience of living and the loss and the grief and the pain and the love of all of it, right? And so, you know, uh, look, I've been very lucky. Uh, They've written beautiful things about my work, but they don't consider me in that pantheon of the great American writers, and I don't care. I'm going to keep doing what I do till I drop dead. So there, there we go. And I, I just think it's delicious when they say in a hundred years, we're going to be reading. You have no freaking idea because if it was a hundred years, we'd be reading Fanny Hurst right now. And I, I can't find three people who know who she is. The great Edna Ferber is barely talked about. Okay. Uh, so nobody knows that. So what you have to do, it seems to me, 
is live your story and keep hacking at it like a sculptor. Just keep going at it, going at it. You'll find it. You'll find it. I love that advice, um, Adriana. It's, it's it's similar to the advice that I often give, and and I've also read that you're uh, you, you've said you're a fast writer, and this is a particular interest to me because I do. When we ah, well, now when did I? When was that quote from? Fifteen years ago, <laughs> last you week. Used to be no, fast. Uh, <laughs> uh, last Tuesday, you said it to us. Yeah, no, I'm kind of not now. Okay. Uh, I've I've slowed the roll a little bit. But not really. I, I don't even want to get into how I'm going to do it because this is a vision that I had and I'm, 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 I'm changing it up because the publishing industry has completely changed and nobody's acknowledging it. Hmm. Uh, and if you want to talk about that, we can talk about it. But um, yeah, I mean, please say more. I'm very curious. Well, when I started doing this. 23 years ago in books, okay? Now, keep in mind, I came off of it as a dramatist in theater and uh, television and film. And I get into the book thing, and, uh, and, and in a weird way, because I'd written the screenplay for Big Stone Gap, and I wanted, and I had directed a, a documentary that got a bunch of prizes, and, they, and, and some people came to me and said, hey, we want what you got going next. And I said, well, I said Big Stone Gap, and I didn't know what I was talking about. So I said, I wrote it. Uh, with at the behest of my girlfriend, who was now, was a book agent, she said, "This is a novel." And she said, "You want to have a baby? You need to like get this together here." And I was like, huh? "How do you write a novel?" <laughs> and listen, I loved novels. I love I, 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 the, the dirty secret is I'm really a nonfiction person, but I love novels. But I, to me, nonfiction or, or, or novels are just true. Anyway, so uh, I write it and I bring it to her, and and it was like a house on fire. They, she sold it. And then I was in a new game. I was in a whole new game. And I'm, I'm going to say the at the outset of everything, I'm going to say this to everybody within the sound of my voice, every seven to 10 years. And I would say for me, okay, 10, I have to completely reinvent what I'm doing because think about it, things change. And it's how many times I'm I'm in a, on a, in a van with a bunch of authors and they'll say, I'm not doing that. I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. And I said, well, you're going to get left behind if you don't do it. You got to uh. do it. You got to move with the river, baby. Now, <laughs> if it doesn't matter to you, okay. Uh, but if it matters to you, and believe me, it matters to most artists, We, th- this is what I'm here for. I'm like, I said, I'm in service to you. You're my fellow artist. What can I do for you? That's how I look at it. It's like what you're doing. Same thing. You know, how do we, we give a voice to this process, right? So uh, in the publishing industry, 23 years ago, and this is the short speech. I'm going to give it to you in a couple sentences. 23 years ago in the United States of America, there were six major publishers and they published under uh, 650,000 books a year, give or take 100,000. Okay? That includes everything. That includes your driver's manuals, to your, uh, to your textbooks, to your popular novels, to your nonfiction, to the Bible, everything. Okay. And how many books were self-published? Oh, I don't know. Not even enough to put them on a grid. Definitely not over, maybe a thousand. I don't know. Maybe a few more. I don't know. Not a lot. Last year in the United States of America, 1.9 million books were self-published and close to a million by the four major publishers were published. Now I'm going to say to you this, how the heck (laughs) are those 1.9 million people who are self-published? Who are their editors? Who are their who are their who are their designers? 
Well, source books, a large share of it is owned by one of the major publishers. So they're, they're making scratch off of that. So the author, the potential author or the author like me or the author that's, you know, 10 years ahead of me uh, in product placement and book writing uh, has a dilemma on their hands because they have to figure out how to be seen and heard in that environment. And this environment is crazy. It's crazy. Uh, and, and then this past year, something extraordinary happened, and it's two words, Colleen Hoover. She's blown every, every one of the old guard out of the water in terms of sales figures. Blown them out of the water. Double, triple, quadrupled their sales. Even the great James Patterson. Hmm. Grisham, Baldacci, all of them. The greats. The most popular, the highest selling, Colleen Hoover. 42-year-old mother out of Texas. And she figured out how to do it. Now, they say she's a TikTok sensation. What do the publishers tell us? Get on TikTok. Well, that doesn't work like that, friends. Yeah, get on it. That doesn't mean anybody's going to follow you. So you have to figure out. You have to navigate. And the other thing that's perplexing to me and upsetting to me is that I think creativity, you have to have, you have, to have a group. Now, you may say, oh, Adriana, that sounds crazy. You're writing a book by yourself. Yeah. When I walk out my door, there's an assistant, there's an intern. I have assistants all summer. I get them from all over the country. I want them to see this process. I want them to have my job. And I want them to bring their creativity and their knowledge to it, which is how we've managed to um, grow what I'm doing. Okay? So, so, so when we're talking about the state of publishing – I fear because they're not in offices anymore, which is to me ridiculous, but I don't run the world. I want to know they're in the office. Listen, I was a young mother. I get it. I mean, I'm a mother of a college kid now, but when I was a young mother, I didn't tell anybody I had a child in business. Now you're doing a Zoom and the kid walks in. Now, nobody loves children more than me. I love children. I was a nanny for crying out loud. Love them. But but this is not good. Now, am I going to tell them? No, because now you can't say anything. But but if you want to be me or you want to have a career that kind of has the swath and expanse of my career, I say to young women, listen, you can have whatever you want in this life, but you have to you have to approach it with the seriousness of a judge because if you don't, you will be left behind or you won't make it. So that's my treatise on publishing. And, you know, listen, <laughs> do I love publishers? Yes. Do I love publishing? I love it. I love it. I love editors. I love the whole scene. But I don't think anybody's benefiting from us not being in offices. And I think it's fueling the, the, uh, the self-publishing route, which, by the way, you have to be a saint when you self-publish because you have to do all the work yourself pretty much. So. There's a lot of work for them and a lot of work for traditionally published as well. And you've definitely been inspiring. And um, I, I love I love your treatise and I uh, love hearing about your discipline. And um, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Adriana. We're super grateful. Thank you for this beautiful opportunity. And I'm so grateful to talk to you. And if you ever need me again, just call me. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break.
Well, on this week's book trend, we're talking about a subject that's actually quite controversial in book circles, and it has to do with the free flow of information, because there are people out there who think that information should be widely and freely available in the digital form, and there are others who think that we should have to have much more controlled ways of disseminating information and paying people who either write or produce that information, and no place gives us a better understanding of the two sides and what's at stake than a library, or in this case, library systems. So Grant, the trend, and I see this up front and personal most weeks, is publishers and libraries locked in a battle over how eBooks should be lended out to readers and the degree to which library loans are cannibalizing book sales, if they are at all. Yeah, this one's complex, Brooke, because it, because it seems you know pretty obvious that people in information industries like book publishing would be reactive to the kinds of things we're seeing with digital books that never played out with print books. For instance, people can get library cards for any library in the country and put themselves on multiple mailing lists and get access to free books. And I think that's agitating for a publisher. But I'm thinking a person who's, who's willing to go to such lengths to borrow that book was probably uh, never going to be a buying consumer anyway. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, totally. And and I also, of course, understand why publishers are concerned about library loans, cannibalizing book sales. Um, but there's that question of like, well, are those people book buyers? I mean, they're clearly avid readers and they must buy some books, but digital sales in general are challenging because people also do not value eBooks the same way they do print books. So uh, I, I think about this all the time because my authors engage in these 99 cent sales and it's widely agreed that that's a good way to gain visibility for books. And then libraries do promote books. And so libraries who have good relationships with publishers and authors do a lot for book sales. So it's a confusing environment and it certainly doesn't behoove any given publisher to have a negative relationship or animosity with libraries. And right now that's happening with Macmillan. The Washington Post reported that Macmillan has started to enforce a new embargo on ebook sales to public libraries, which started last November. And this means that libraries can buy a single ebook version of any new title. So a single version of any new title. And then it has to wait eight weeks before it can buy more. But that's creating a lot of disdain, I guess the word would be, from libraries toward Macmillan. That's interesting. Um, Since you obviously know more about this than I do, Brooke, how is that different from how other publishers lend to libraries? Well, basically, publishers sell books to libraries at a higher unit cost. So it might cost like $40 or $60 to license an ebook, and it could have an indefinite number of lens or it might have a term limit on it, like one to two years. So publishers have started experimenting with much higher price points for very well-known authors. So that's starting to become really expensive for libraries to acquire certain kinds of titles. Um, But then the library also will buy like, let's say, five ebook licenses. And that means that it can license only to five readers at a time. And then that reader needs to return the digital version before the library can lend it out to the next person. And this is a lot how library subscription services work as well. So there's an exchange of money up front 
from the library to the publisher and then a set number of downloads allocated. But right now, everything just feels contentious. Like it's starting to just feel like publishers are not liking that. They're distrusting the system. Amazon, for instance, just doesn't even sell any of its digital books to libraries. And when I say Amazon, I mean Amazon, the publisher. Uh, And while they haven't commented on why, I think it has to do with skepticism about like how this way of loaning books is working. You know, it's so much different, of course, than a single copy of a hardcover book being at a library that gets taken home and then returned before going to the next person. And there are a lot of legitimate fears about the detrimental impact of publishers and authors for this kind of free-for-all way of thinking about library lending when it comes to digital books. But publishers are making money from libraries, and it sounds like finding ways to make more and more money by charging higher licensing fees. And that's creating another tension between publishers and libraries. Yeah, it is. Uh, I wouldn't call it a war, but it's definitely a battle. (laughs) And I think Mm -hmm. the best outcome here would be more regulation. You know, I'd Mm -hmm. I'd also like to see public libraries crack down on who can loan books. Like, for instance, um, I I think you should at least live in the state, if not the county. I think borrowing from across state lines is extreme. That is, yeah. Well, there's so much here, Brooke. It feels like uh, we could do a show, perhaps. So let's talk about that. Maybe we could put some feedlers out there for a librarian uh, to bring on to talk about uh, this very uh, relevant topic. Yeah, I would love that. And I know some, so we'll make a point of it in this first quarter or two of the new year. Uh, for now, I'll say that I'm a publisher who opts into all the library programs. Uh, and I also understand the publishers who are skeptical about digital lens. And libraries are such an important community resource, you know, that just like everything in our society is having to react in real time to what the internet and digital reading and the free flow of information means for all of us. Uh, and we grapple with that too, Grant. We're a source of free information here, you know, so it's something that we think about often, which is why, you know, at least if you're listening to things for free or consuming things for free, you can pay forward by letting other people know that you like stuff, you know, so that's an ask for us today. We're going to ask you to share with a friend, post on social media about an episode you might have enjoyed or leave us a review. We're super grateful for your support and we'll see you next week.